We're in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. It's one of the small books near the end of your Bible. Titus chapter 2. In my Bible, it takes up really just two pages. I don't know how big your print is in your Bible, but seriously, it's just two pages. And we are in chapter 2. And last week, we looked at verses 1 through 8. And in verses 1 through 8, we got instructions for uh, how the church should operate. Older men, older women, investing in younger men, younger women, and what those attributes should be like as we follow after Christ. And it's in that same vein of Paul giving Titus instructions of what a healthy and ordered church should look like that we come down to verse 9. And there's a little bit of a switch here. It's, it's the same vein, but now instead of older men and older women, now it's a specific person in a specific role. And in verse 9, if you'll read with me, we'll see that. Titus 2, verse 9. It says, God's word says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing all good faith, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So here Paul is instructing Titus on how to put the church in order in a world of chaos and we can agree the world is chaotic. In a world of chaos, how does the church maintain order? We've already seen in the first part of chapter 2 that older men and women should be discipling younger men and women. But here in verses 9 and 10, there's a specific turn towards how a slave should operate. The, the ESV translates this, the, the, the version I'm using, translate this as bond servant here in verse 9. Your translation may say servant or slave. Ultimately, this person that we're being we're seeing addressed here is a person who takes orders from someone else. <laughs> like that's what's happening. Now, and I would say on top of that, they're taking orders from someone else without pay. There might be different reasons for that, but it's they don't have a choice in the matter. In this text, we know we're dealing with a culture in Crete and Greco-Roman culture that had slaves. It was prevalent. Slavery was prevalent in that time and in that place. It would have been substantially different than what we understand from our American history of chattel slavery, but it would still feel like in most cases like the lowest caste. Now in in again in Crete, it wouldn't have always been that way. We find in Rome and in Greece that sometimes slaves held high positions in government, that they held esteemed positions. So slavery would, would have been a different understanding almost altogether, except that still there was someone who was giving them orders, but they had no choice but to, but to uh, obey. In some cases, though, slaves would probably have felt somewhat dehumanized and would have desired their freedom. Uh, we see that really throughout humanity is that no matter how high your position, you still desire freedom. You still desire to be able to control your own future, control what you do with yourself. But however they felt, we're going to see that the principles that Paul teaches for slaves carries broad application. We're going to see a lot of application here, not just to slaves, but even to just paid employees. So whether you're a slave or an employee, the truth is that this letter to Titus teaches that all people have dignity. What we're going to see in verses 9 and 10 is that 
God dignifies every person. It's a concept we really see throughout all of Scripture, that a person's value is not based on their wealth or station in life. It's based on their humanity, that God has made people in his image. And to, to any extent to which our culture has adopted this view, that people are valuable because they are people, to any extent that our culture has adopted this view, they've adopted it from a distinctly Christian worldview. We might take this for granted, and you might have conversations with people who, who don't believe that God exists at all, who would be like, right, we can all agree on that. But the question is, why? Why, why would we agree on that? There is a biblical reason for agreeing on that that we can't find in worldviews built out of an evolutionary worldview or, or any number of religions. The idea that every life has value is a biblical concept. And we should be grateful that for the most part, our culture has agreed with that concept. We see pretty glaring, pretty glaring holes in that belief in our culture. And honestly, the church has missed on that before. But today we want to call out biblical concept that every life has value. For Christians and among Christians, this goes even a step further. Paul here is giving instructions for Christian slaves. These are men and women who are, cons- uh, who are covered in the blood of Jesus for their righteousness. Here he's talking to the church. And so he's saying, hey, Christians do this. Here who he's talking to, they're going to spend eternity in fellowship with other believers And so for us, we say, yes, every human has value. But isn't it interesting that we should think about how we treat people who we're going to spend eternity calling brothers and sisters? How should we treat people who we will call brothers and sisters forever? Paul then doesn't write to these slaves as subhuman or as animals. He writes to them as brothers and sisters, valued co-heirs. In front of the cross, every person has dignity because every person has been made in the image of God and God himself desires fellowship with them. So to understand Paul's instruction for the church in these two verses, we have to start with the cross. And we can look at it. When when we look towards the cross, we see how Jesus really turned the world on its head. It's, it's, It's almost, it's impossible for us to overestimate the impact of what Jesus did on the cross to, to world history, for every person and for, for how we see each other. No longer was everyone condemned to whatever they could take and earn for themselves by their power. It's not just a power game anymore. Now, because of the cross, every person, Jew and Gentile, could be called a child of God. Every person could have eternal value and meaning in Christ. In the shadow of the cross, there is no difference between the Jew and Greek. There's no difference between the male and female, slave and free. We can even bring this up a little bit and say there's no difference between the Democrat and Republican, the rich and poor, the black and white. The cross is the great equalizer because each person deserves a consequence for their sin. Every one of us is is equal under the weight of our sin. None of us by our wealth or status has, or by our achievements have been able to break through that burden. We're all crushed equally to the same death. The cross reminds us of the weight of our sin. 
we are all sinners. The more deeply then that we feel the depth of our sin, the more we see our sin accurately as a great rebellion against the one true God, the more we feel the depth of our sin, the more grateful we will be to have our sin forgiven. Church, that's why I hope almost every Sunday, I hope every Sunday, you hear me preach about your sin. (laughs) Because as we talk about the gospel in the text, we can't ignore that each of us came as sinners to Christ. And that each one of us in Christ still wrestle with sin. And so for every day that we enjoy Christ's forgiveness, we should remember how grateful we should be. That we get to be forgiven, that we get to be saved. But the cross reminds us of the weight of our sin. That we needed a perfect sacrifice to take our place. Because our weight was so, the weight of our sin was so heavy, we could not save ourselves. We needed someone to do it. And Jesus was that perfect substitute. He took our place. He took our sins and the consequence for our sins on his shoulder, on his shoulders. It's by grace that we are saved. So it's a gift from God that we cannot earn. We need that gift. We need what God has done for us, his grace. And it's because of God's grace we can have faith, that we can receive Jesus' death and resurrection as salvation from our sin. So we receive it. We don't earn it. We don't do something to get it. Jesus has done the work, and it's his gift by grace and in faith that we can receive that salvation. So I'll say it to you right now boldly. I mean, we're we're like 10 minutes into the sermon, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it. If you're not a Christian this morning, why wait? Why wait till I get done with the end of the sermon? To say, yes, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I need a savior. And yes, I'll trust Jesus for my salvation. Why not now? It can be right now for you. (laughs) Go for it. Talk to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. Tell him that you want him to be your Lord and Savior, that you want him to take your place. He's already done it. It's the call of the cross that reminds us not only the weight of our sin, not only that we need someone to be our substitute, but it's, it's the call of the cross that reminds us that death is defeated. That Jesus did die. When we look to the cross, we remember Jesus dying, and we also remember as we look at it, they didn't stay there. <laughs> that he went to a grave, and that grave is empty now. That three days later, he rose again. He rose again, and he defeated death and made a way for us to be with him forever. That every person, even the slave, even the bondservant in verse 9, as well as the master, because of Jesus' resurrection, have the opportunity to fellowship with him in life forever. The cross then also calls us to follow after Jesus. If we look at the cross, we're reminded of our sin. We're reminded of our need for the Savior who laid his life down on that cross. We're reminded that we will have life with him forever if we repent and believe. And we're reminded that we're also called to pick up our own cross and follow after him. That in believing in him, that we are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after him. In Paul's instructions for slaves, we find the call of the cross influencing every part of the Christian life. That if we don't understand the call of the cross on the Christian life, we won't understand verses 9 and 10. Actually, we won't understand any of the text of the Bible. (laughs) It'll all be confusing and strange, and why is this written? It's out in the light of the gospel that all of it makes sense. 
And so here, especially in verse 9 and 10, we look at it from what is the cross calling us to? What is Christ calling us to? The cross and all of its significance calls out to us. Maybe ironically here, we have to start here, that the cross calls us to freedom. That the cross calls us to freedom. And that's strange. Look at verse 9. This, is, this doesn't seem like that. You're like, Mark, well, maybe you're just opposites day. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. How is that freedom? How do we start there? Well, the starting place for how a Christian should operate within his role is his freedom in Christ. If we look at what Jesus has done for the slave, then verse 9 is a, is a command built out of that slave's freedom. How can a bondservant submit in everything to an earthly master? By not doing anything for his earthly master. You're like, wait, Mark, wait, hold on. You just said two opposite things. Yeah. The way that a bondservant submits to an earthly master is by not doing anything for his earthly master and by doing everything for Jesus. That his freedom is that he's not servant to the earthly master. He's servant to Christ. That is a freedom that no money can buy and no man can give. That is only what Jesus can give in setting us free from the chains of our sin and making us free to live what he has created us to live in fellowship with him. That's true freedom. We submit first to Jesus, and by submitting to Jesus in everything, then we have the motivation and incentive to submit to the earthly master he's allowed to be over us. That it's not an accident in following after Jesus that he's put us in the place that we're in. Look at Colossians 3. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over. Colossians 3. We're going to look at a few verses here. Colossians 3, verse 22. Colossians 3, verse 22 says this. Bond See, similar terminology here, the, the address. Bond servants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service. Look at the attitude. Look at the motivation. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You see the motivation there. You see the incentive. It's because of the Lord. And then verse 23 makes it even more clear. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. <laughs> it doesn't get more plain and clear than that. Who are you working for? Your freedom is in Christ. That your job is not with some company or even for yourself. Your job, your work is for Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Hey, slave, if you're in a bad situation, if someone is hurting you and abusing you, know that nothing you will do to get payback on him will, will compare to what God will do. He will have justice. The wrongdoer will be paid back. God's teaching that slaves should work heartily as unto the Lord because the real reward of their work is not pleasing an earthly master or paying off a debt. The real reward of their work was an inheritance from the Lord. So what's our inheritance? I mean, that sounds nice. I like inheritances, right? Her inheritances are, are great. It's great to have an inheritance. What God gives us as an inheritance is fellowship with him. 
our inheritance is being with God. It's enjoying the presence and being in the presence of his glory. It's being filled with all the fullness of God, as Ephesians 3, as Paul prays for the church, so that we can know and enjoy him forever. Remember, church, heaven is real. We, we might forget that sometimes in our day-to-day. Like we get st- so stuck in, in forgetfulness. Heaven is real. We're going to be with God forever. And that's our inheritance. That's the best inheritance you could have. And in remembering, in remembering that heaven is real, we should remember that hell is also real. Before we were saved by Jesus, we deserved an eternity in the place where there is eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. But in Jesus, we have been saved to an eternity of fellowship with Jesus. So verse 9 calls the slave to submit to the master because he's working as a person who has an infinitely valuable inheritance, not from that earthly slave master, but from the good, righteous master, Jesus Christ. And that valuable inheritance is being in the presence of God. And if this is true for slaves, if this is true for slaves, it's true for your work too. It's true for your job. It's true for your the work you put in as a husband or wife. It's true for the work you put in as a parent that your work is not just for the people who are around you or even yourself, that every action, every thought, every work that you do should be held captive to the thought that it is all for Christ. You are a servant of the Lord Jesus. Work at it as someone who has a great reward in Christ. Notice this. We can only obey Colossians 3.23. We can only obey that if Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And not just if, but because. (laughs) Because he did. So we can only obey this call to work as unto the Lord because Jesus died on the cross for our sin. He purchased our freedom on that cross, and we're no longer bound to the bondage of our sin. Our freedom in Christ opens us up to this amazing possibility of following in his steps of submissiveness. Jesus set the example of servanthood. The cross was the pinnacle of service and obedience. Sometimes we just think of it as this historical marker, but Jesus was setting an example for us on the cross, not just of suffering, but of service and obedience. Look at Philippians 2, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. We'll have this on the screen. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says that Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking the form of what? A servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What kind of example for us? What kind of example for us that could God call us to a place in life that might be too low? No, we're called in every place of life to follow after Jesus in all service and obedience and submission. So we look at the cross and it calls us to freedom and we look at the cross and it calls us to submission. 
It's a clear command there. We see it just ahead of this, that wives are submit to their husbands. Here we see it. Bond servants, slaves, submit to your masters. We cannot look to Jesus' work on the cross and think we get to be the mighty and powerful. It doesn't work that way. That's, that's not the call of the cross. The call of the cross is not to be the rich and famous. The call of the cross is to be the poor and suffering. And I'm not preaching a poverty gospel there. I'm saying that our expectation is that we do whatever God has called us to. The might and power of Jesus on the cross was found in his obedience to the Father. If you want true might and power, if you want biblical might and power, then this is the call. Obey, serve, submit, surrender. That feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? <laughs> like we don't, that doesn't feel right. We want to resist that pretty hard. But that is the call. At the cross, we relinquish our control of our lives and hand it over to God. So the command in verse 9 is not something burdensome. The command in verse 9 is light work. We're pleased to do this. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. We can only obey this call to submit because Jesus died for our sin on the cross. Jesus did the heavy lifting. He did the heavy lifting for us. Now we get to obey in freedom. Now we get to obey in joy. Because verse 9 is not a call as some empty exhortation to a robotic and lifeless obedience. This isn't a call to just fall back and not care. This is a call to joyful pursuit of Jesus. Verse 9 is a call to a joyful pursuit of Jesus. And that might sound crazy, but let's think about it again. Verse 9 is a call to a joyful pursuit of Jesus. And probably all of us are like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I will joyfully submit to Jesus. Whatever Jesus asks me, I'll, I'll submit to. Absolutely. That, that sounds great, joyful. But verse 9 is a call to submit to Jesus by submitting to a master, an earthly master. And that feels a little less interesting to me. So Jesus made it clear in the New Testament that submitting to him means submitting to those in authority. Not as a way to rob us of our dignity or our value or our worth, but just the opposite, as a way to establish our worth and dignity in Christ. The call is joyful pursuit of Jesus, and we see this specific call to slaves, specifically, in so many passages in the New Testament. You can find it in Ephesians 6. You can find it, as we've seen, in Colossians 3. You can find it in 1 Timothy 6. You can find it in Philemon. You can find it in 1 Peter 2. Isn't it interesting that God speaks to this topic that much? I mean, you might not realize, but God talks a lot to this relationship because in this culture, that was a strange toppling of cultural norms that now the slave and the master were on equal footing before the cross. So slave, how do you work within, how do you work in the household of a master? Master, how do you treat a slave that, that, that is in your household? Here we see that specific call to slaves, but we, we see that further call for citizens to submit to governments, for wives to submit to husbands, for congregations to submit to pastors. We can't have a church of order, Titus 1.5, 
You can't have a church of order without people willing to submit to authority. Not as robots, but as joyful and free followers of Christ. None of us here are slaves today. We, we, we don't read this as a slave and praise God for that. But imagine a slave who doesn't own her work. She's tasked with whatever her master asks of her. You can imagine that being defeating and dehumanizing. But, but Jesus comes along and says, now you're no longer working for the will of your master. Now Jesus makes the mundane work of a slave an opportunity to honor him. Isn't that a beautiful transition of the purpose of work? Now my purpose isn't just to make it another day. Now my purpose is to store up for myself treasure in heaven. For, for the way we apply this today, no longer is then the employee just doing a task to earn a paycheck. Now she's completing her task for the glory of God. Isn't that a wonderful shift in how you do your work? And you've probably heard that before. You've, you've probably heard do everything to the glory of God before. But remember, the cross has called you to this. This is the work of following after Jesus, that he would be the forefront of our mind, that everything would do, be, we do would be for him. The cross calls us to submit because we are following after Jesus. And it's not a lousy submission either. It's not one with just enough to get by. Sure, I'll do just the bare minimum to say I did it. <laughs> That's not what it calls us to. Biblical submission is done in excellence. It's right to say that the cross calls us to excellence. Look at verse 9. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything, and then look how. Look how. How are they supposed to do that? They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not but showing all good faith. It would be easy for a slave to resist serving his master. Many of us would say it would be right. And we've, we've seen examples where that has led to wonderful outcomes. But here, Paul teaches that the, the slave should do what it takes to please his master, to not argue, but to have a good attitude. He calls him not to steal, but to protect the master's investment, to earn the faith and trust of the master. That when the master looks out and sees his slaves, he says, the Christians are the best. The Christians are the best. The Christians serve me well. Paul is calling through the power of the cross Christian slaves to be the best slaves possible. And this isn't a defense of slavery. Paul isn't saying slavery is right or good. That's not the takeaway here. What he's saying is that Christians should shine in the darkest places. And there's great application there for us, that Christians should shine in the darkest places. If the work of the Christian is now, because of Jesus, first and foremost honoring Jesus, then it demands the best we have. We don't do it half-heartedly. We do it all the way, as if for Christ. That's true for the slave, and it's certainly true for the free the Christian's identity is first wrapped in Christ. And since we are representing Jesus in our work, we should be the best at it. The idea here is that if the master of the slave hears the gospel, that he might 
say, yeah, I've seen how that gospel plays out in the life of someone who I've treated poorly, who I've treated well. That I've seen the way that plays out. Imagine a master hearing the gospel and finding out that his worst slave is the Christian. The one who the one who is argumentative all the time, who is never kind to him, who always loses his investment. That's a poor reflection on the gospel. So here Paul is saying, be the best you possibly can for the sake of seeing the master as a person with dignity, even if they're on the the giving end of abuse seeing them as someone who needs Christ, as someone who needs the gospel. For us as employees, we should think that because where we, where we mop floors, we should imagine that Jesus might walk on that floor. <laughs> that we think where we keep books, that Jesus might look over those books. That we might treat customers like that customer would be Jesus. That we do everything for his honor because we hope that those over us would look at us and find support for the gospel that we preach and not find a reason to reject the gospel that we preach. And this doesn't depend at all. Our, our motivation for excellence in Christ doesn't depend at all on our pay or how good our boss is or what our working conditions are like. It depends only on the goodness of Christ, that he is good. We can only obey this call to excellence because Jesus died on the cross for our sin. <laughs> because our excellence is not just creating a good product or a good experience or doing what our boss says to the best of our ability. It's all of that infused in an attitude of thankfulness and light. Christian excellence is not just being the best you can be. It's being on mission while you do the best you can. Christian excellence is being on mission while you do the best you can. Because the cross calls us to mission. We see that slaves are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not stilling, not showing, uh, but showing all good faith. And why? Why, why is the slave called to, to act in this way, to, to live in this way? So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The glory of God is the mission of the believer. The glory of God is the mission of the believer. The doctrine of God is the teaching of who he is. And we cannot separate the doctrine of God from the glory of God. Because as we learn about who God is, that's his, that's his nature, that's his beauty, that's what, he's, that's what he's shown forth for us to see. It reflects his glory. So those who are filled with the Holy Spirit want to see and experience the glory of God. And it doesn't stop there, though. Those who are filled with the Holy Spirit want to participate in showing others his glory. We want to make disciples who make disciples because disciples enjoy and love and tremble at the glory of God. God in his grace has made every part of our life an opportunity to participate. Even for the slave. Even in the verses just before this, for the older men and the older women and the younger men and the younger women, for the husband and the wife, for the single person, for every act of your life, God has made it an opportunity to participate in his work. And as a Christian, think about this, as a Christian, you carry the son's name wherever you go. As a temple, you carry the spirit in you wherever you go. 
So in your actions and in your labor, here's the question. Do you adorn the doctrine of God or do you defile the doctrine of God? What is your life? Does it add luster to the message? I love that message, but I see you, and I don't know if I can believe the message. Or I love that message, and I see you, and I know it has to be true. What is our life? What is our call? The call is to be on mission, that we would adorn the doctrine of God. And we can only obey the call to the mission of God because Jesus died on the cross for our sin. Otherwise, what is it all for? If we can't be saved, if we can't have heaven's fellowship with God, then none of this mission matters. <laughs> but it's because of the cross. It's because the cross calls out to us. Because what Jesus did on the cross, the significance of that for us, that we can go be on mission. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sin and rose again, the mission of glorifying God is extended to us. There are many Christians who claim Jesus but not his mission. I want to say that again because I want to make sure you heard that. <laughs> There's many Christians who claim Jesus but not his mission. And that's important because truly we can't claim Christ without claiming his mission. You can't divide Christ from his mission. He made his mission and yours clear. There's no doubt about what your mission is as a follower of Christ and what his mission was. In John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He was talking to his disciples. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And what was Christ sent to do? He was sent to seek and save the lost. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save the unrighteous. The, the healthy have no need for a physician, but the sick. We are called to be on mission to go to the sick, to go to the lost, to go to the hurting, and proclaim the message of Christ. We must claim his mission if we are to claim him. We are to adorn the doctrine of God by representing him well. Not because we add glory to him. It doesn't add glory to adorn the doctrine. But instead, it's, we, we know that God is already fully and perfectly glorious but our adorning can be like giant arrows pointing to his glory and who he is. These slaves in verses 9 and 10 were called to an eternal purpose. Their temporary condition wasn't lost on God or Paul. But more important than escaping temporary suffering, or whatever their status was, whatever their station was, God desired that they be storing up eternal treasures. That's God's desire for you as well. That you would be storing up eternal treasures no matter what your circumstances are. God's hope was that those slaves might turn to Christ or that those slave masters might turn to Christ by the testimony and witness of their slaves. I wonder who in your life needs to hear the gospel and needs to hear it from someone who is evidence that the gospel is real. So I'm going to ask you, are, are you on mission? Are you on mission? When we say it at the end of the service, to live sent and change the world with the gospel, are you on mission? Or do you just claim it? 
Do you just claim Jesus? Do you just claim the name of a church? Do you just claim something? Or are you following after Jesus? I wonder who will be in heaven because of your faithfulness to obey God's word and make disciples. Let me apply some, some healthy pressure here this morning. This is urgent. This isn't something that you get to wait to figure out. This is urgent. If heaven is real, if hell is real, if the cross is real, and the empty grave is real, then every day is urgent. Are we living lives that adorn the gospel we preach? And are we preaching the gospel at all? Are we sharing the gospel at all? When is the last time that any of us has even made an effort to share the gospel? It's happening, church. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you. It's happening. I know. I know that you guys, some of you are working to share the gospel. I want to encourage you in it. Keep doing it. Find the places. Keep doing it. I want to keep applying that healthy pressure if you're not. If you can't think of the last time, there's no excuse. We're called. Even slaves are called for the gospel witness of their masters. You who are free, you are free. What good conditions God has given you to share the gospel. Man, praise God that he has put us in a position that we get to live as we live to share the gospel. Are you preaching the gospel? Are you on mission? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, the gospel is the truth that God is perfect and that you are not that we as humans sin and rebel against God and that in his perfection, he judges us justly and condemns us to that place I've mentioned called hell. Not because God is evil, but because we are. It's because God is good. It's not that he has chosen that for us, but that we have chosen it for ourselves. And as I've already said, the good news is that Jesus came to take that consequence that you deserve on his shoulders. And when the first Christians were asked, what must I do to be saved? They said, repent and believe. Romans gives us a little more clarity. The book of Romans gives us a little more clarity. It says, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. It means submit to him as your master. It means surrender to Jesus as your master. Not out of work, out of faith. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. What do you believe today? Who is your master? Are you your own master? Or is Jesus? Do you believe in yourself and in things or in something that you've done for salvation when you die? Or do you believe in Jesus alone? Because Jesus alone is all that will do it. We're about to sing about Jesus and about this. And it's going to be a wonderful time for you to be praising God. And if you need to deal with God, do it then. If you need to surrender your life to him, if you need to believe in him for your salvation, do it then. I'll be in the back if you need to talk. And I would love to talk to you. Grab a neighbor. Talk to a neighbor. If you have anything you need prayer for, I'll be in the back. Grab a neighbor. Let me pray for you now. Father, we're, we're thankful that you have given us a mission. That we're not left floundering and wondering what we're supposed to do. God, but we know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to follow after you. And it's only possible because of what you've done for us, that you set the example of service and obedience, of submission. God, I pray that 
this morning, whoever's listening online or in this building, God, I, I pray, God, I ask you to stir in their hearts. God, make your gospel unavoidable. Make the stir of your Holy Spirit unavoidable, God. Draw people to yourself. God, give them courage to tell people. Give them courage to talk about it. God, give us courage to be gospel witnesses living desperately for you, living desperately to see others follow after you because we love you so much. God, we do love you. We pray this all in your holy name. Amen.